Hello podcasters, welcome back to Mr. Stroud's History Class. Going to begin with a shout out, which I've been doing and I enjoy doing them. First one is a re-shout out for Jennifer Adams. Jennifer is a former student, an outstanding individual that graduated from Stephen F. Austin State University, which is where I graduated many years ago, in the town of Nacogdoches, the oldest town in Texas, with a marketing degree. Since her first shout-out, she has been employed by Xerox as a sales representative in the East Texas area. The reason she's getting a second shout-out is not only because she's an outstanding individual, an outstanding podcaster, as many of you are, but when I get through with a podcast and I send them to the individuals on my Facebook friends list, some of them text me back. And Jennifer texts me this. I enjoy listening to your podcast and continuing to learn more. Jennifer, that is so tremendous because learning, as you know, is an ING word. And Xerox is a tremendous organization, but it's going to do even better with Jennifer Adams representing them in the East Texas area. The other shout out goes to two people that I've known for many years, and that is Donna and Gary Smith, who live in the Chattanooga area. Donna is a stay-at-home mom and an exceptionally good gardener who will post on her Facebook photographs from her garden and when I see them, because she and I have both enjoyed reading in the Garden of Good and Evil, I always make the comment, certainly the Garden of the Good. She's a tremendous crossword puzzle putter together, and I have been told that once she throws those thousand pieces on the card table, you will think it's in fast motion as she's putting that together. Don't even think about looking at the box. She'll be finished that quickly. She and Gary raised three marvelous young men, Hunter, Ross, and Travis. She's married to retired Dr. Gary Smith, retired anesthesiologist, but he did not slow down. He is an accomplished artist, tremendous painter, I mean unbelievable, and is a beekeeper. Podcasters, you can't get much better than these two. And of course, they are loyal podcasters that I am proud to list as podcasters, members of Mr. Stroud's history class, and friends. Now, this podcast is going to be about the battle of Chattanooga. But before Chattanooga, there was Chickamauga. Before Chickamauga, there was Murfreesboro. But before I tell you about those, I'm going to tell you something that has something to do with something I'm going to tell you later. I'm going to say that again. I'm going to tell you something that has something to do with something I'm going to tell you later. 
Now I'm going to ask a question, and I just have you raise one hand. I don't care whether it's your right hand or your left hand. And I'm speaking mainly with history books. Now, chapters and chatter, this could also be true of non-history books. But with history, which is my thing, once in a while, I get a book, but once in a while, do I read the first couple of lines, and I just want to say, wow. I didn't see that coming, but what a marvelous thing. Podcasters, I hope you will agree with me, and if you don't, just keep your hands down and don't you tell anyone that you don't agree with Mr. Straff. There is a joy in learning. And when I learn what I'm getting ready to tell you, it was joyful. I got the book, The Only Adult Biography of Betsy Ross. And yes, she did not make the flag. That's a legend. She didn't even know anything about that legend that was created years later after her death. But she was a flag maker. That's one of the things that she did. And the book, I've got it right here, Betsy Ross and the Making of America by... Dr. Marla R. Miller, University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Podcasters, I'm going to tell you something right now. Just before I started doing this podcast, just make sure that I had everything down, I went to the Google, I went to Professor Google, and I typed in University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and guess what? It had history faculty. I went there, and guess what? No, you haven't guessed it yet. Photographs of each one. Alphabetical order. Biographical information. Tremendous. Email and telephone. And podcasters, I'm going to do something. I will send her an email and tell her how much I enjoyed her book, The Biography of Betsy Ross. Now, what in the world was on the opening lines of that book that's making me go on like this? Remember what I said. I'm going to tell you something that has something to do with something I'm going to tell you later. Hang on. Here it is. Here it is. In 1994, Sotheby's was having an auction. There were about 45 people there. And as it is told in the introduction of the Betsy Ross book, you would have thought it was a tennis match as the heads went back and forth as the bidders increased the amount they were bidding. And what were they bidding on? They were bidding on a flag from the American Revolution that was the battle flag of the second Connecticut Continental Light Dragoons. The bidding went back and forth, back and forth, and finally, as you know, going once, going twice, sold. 
sold. This was happened to be on Flag Day, June 14th. Are you ready? Sold to an anonymous bidder for, hang on, $17 million. I'm going to say that again. $17 million. Wow. Podcasters. If you listen to every one of the podcasts on the Civil War, maybe by now you have figured out that I am a flag fanatic. I don't know why, but I am. And I don't mean this politically. I just mean I have liked flags for a long time. And I think it has to do with the Civil War, the capturing of battle flags. I have five books on Civil War battle flags. Five books, podcasters. Five of them. $17 million. Okay, now I'm going to give you a podcast secret. It's a podcast secret, podcasters. Now, if you've not heard of a podcast secret, I'm going to tell you what you got to do. You got to zip those lips. And the way you do that is you take one of your hands and you pretend to zip up your lips because you're not going to tell anyone what I'm getting ready to tell you. It stays on this podcast. Now, once you zip those lips, raise your right hand and make a fist. Then lift your little pinky in the air. That's your little finger. And then with your lips zipped, I want you to try to say, What? I will not reveal what Mr. Strauss is getting ready to tell us because this is a podcast secret. That is zipping the lips and a pinky swear. What is it? I have a small collection of flags. Original. Original. Not from the American Revolution. Not even from the Civil War. Second World War. Podcasters, I recently acquired a Japanese World War II flag is their national flag, the white with the sun in the center. I have passed up those flags by the hundreds. So what did I buy this one? Because it has these four letters stenciled on it. U-S-M-C. What could that be? United States Marine Corps. The left of the sun. Okinawa. Podcasters. That was the bloodiest island in the Pacific. And then to the right of the sun, Lusman, the Marine who captured it. Podcasters, I got to tell you something. I shouldn't do it, but I'm going to do it anyway, okay? If you've listened to these podcasts, you may know that I was a U.S. Marine, and yes, once a Marine, you just don't ever get over it. Before I went to Vietnam, I was on Okinawa. 
and we were at Camp Swab, named for a Marine Medal of Honor recipient in the northern part. That's where the Marines fought. This flag must have come from that area that I was in before I went to Vietnam. I've talked about this. Do I need a psychiatrist? Why am I fascinated with this stuff? Why? I have a twin brother. They said, when's the last time you've seen him? He's in Wisconsin. I said, when I looked in the mirror. He's not fascinated with this stuff. He doesn't collect anything. He buys a lot of books because he reads a lot, but he doesn't collect books. I don't know. I've discussed this, people. People podcasters, because there may be some kitty cat and dogs podcasting. I think it is. It's just this, this thing about the Civil War and the capturing of the flags. That's a podcast secret. You do not need to share that with anyone, okay? And remember, I'm telling you these things because they got something to do with something I'm going to tell you later. Now, before Chattanooga, there was Chickamauga. Before Chickamauga, there was Stones River. Stones River is not an apostrophe S. It's Stones. It's the name of the river. A bloody, bloody battle. Now, one of the things I've decided to do, and if you listen to all these podcasts, I've decided to do something with just about every one of them. Remember, I was going to read you a a presentation of a sword from my book? Well, that went by the wayside, simply because the most presentations were so long. I just kind of put that aside. But I feel guilty by not mentioning Exodus Brigade, which is the last book I wrote, published in 2004. So I went back and looked at the chapter on Stones River, because that's where they fought, one of the battles they fought in. I'm going to read you part of a letter written by a private named Pharaoh Boone of the 14th Texas after the Battle of Murfreesboro, which, by the way, General Bragg, the Confederates, lost that battle. Now, Pharaoh Boone had written to his aunt. He wrote about it. Well, I saw Billy. I saw Jimmy. I got the socks that you sent me. You know, the small talk stuff. And then he closed. I'm going to read that out loud. I'm going to read it out loud. Here we go. Nothing could be heard but the dying and wounded. Morning, it was a most melancholy scene that I've ever saw. Well, Aunt L., I guess you want to hear how I felt in the fight. I was somewhat like the little boy that the cow ran over. I did not have much to say. Podcasters. I'm proud of each and every one of my books. I am. I've told you this before, but you got to go back to all the podcasts to see which one. On Book TV, yes, there is a Book TV weekends. A lady that had written about five or six books was asked which book does she like the best. 
and I'll never forget her answer. My books are like my children. I love each in their own special way. And in the book, Extra's Texas Brigade in the Army of Tennessee, I have a lot of stories like this one. And I put that in there because these battles are atrocious. Atrocious. The number of dead and wounded, staggering. Union casualties in that battle, 12,900. 12,900. Confederate casualties in that battle, 11,739. December 31st, 1862 to January 2nd, 1863. Now, why am I telling you about this? Because there was someone in that battle. Podcasters, I want to tell y'all something. I like y'all so much. I share things with y'all. I'm telling you things. I do not sit in the cafe and tell this to anyone. You understand? One reason is nobody ever asked me about it. If they do, they better watch out. I am getting to be anything but a teenager. And I'm going to tell you something right now, podcasters. Once you think you know everything, don't you ever tell that to anybody. Because you don't. And all you got to do to know you don't know everything is read one more book and you'll see, my gosh, I hadn't even started learning. I'm learning about heroes I didn't even know about. And here's one. He was known as the boy colonel. But before he was the boy colonel, he was the boy lieutenant. His name, Arthur MacArthur. 24th Wisconsin Volunteers. When the war starts, he wants to go in the war. He wants to go in the, a regiment. But by the time he's getting ready to go into the regiment, all of the regiments that he wanted to go into already had their line officers. And the governor said he was too young. He was only 17. But his father was a judge, so his father went to the governor. They knew each other, and he said, Look, he's not 17, he's 18. And besides that, he's a high school graduate and has been to a military academy to prepare him for the United States Military Academy. Podcasters, I bought the biography on Arthur MacArthur and I would never regret having to do that. I tried to find what military academy he went to and it's not listed so if any of you know, or if you find out, you let me know, okay? He lied about his age, said he was 18, he wasn't, he was 17. Then he was 18. And the governor said, okay, he can't be a line officer, meaning an officer of the infantry. But because he's got such a good education, when many of those officers are illiterate, he will become adjutant of the 24th Wisconsin. I'm going to mention this again. This learning thing, podcasters. Another biography I recently read was the biography of Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. who was shot through the neck at Antietam.
He almost died. But that won't be the only wound he gets in that war. And he said that being the adjutant was more dangerous than being the line officer of an infantry unit because he's all over that battlefield. He's the messenger carrying orders back and forth. He was in the middle of the battle at Stones River. Lieutenant Arthur MacArthur, the adjutant, but he wasn't wounded. But he almost died afterwards. Came down with typhoid. 161,000 Union soldiers died of typhoid. 161,000 Union soldiers died of typhoid. How do we know that number? It's in the records. Don't have any records on the Confederates, but you know they're dying in the same amount. Survival rate, 40%. So if you came down with typhoid, cheer up. You got a 40% chance of being alive when all this is over. Walter MacArthur's father in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, learned about it, and he came 600 miles, and he got the colonel's permission, and he took that boy home to Milwaukee, and he treated him. And while he was home, he experienced something that I will promise you many combat veterans experienced. The civilians didn't have a clue what was going on. They talked about patriotism and glory. And young Lieutenant MacArthur, he found more comfort in talking with other veterans. I'm going to tell you something right now, podcasters, and I want you to listen to it. And I want you to write it down in your mind or you write it on a piece of paper. If you're driving, you pull over and you write this down, okay? He was reading about his regiment. They had fought the battle at Chickamauga. They had retreated and they're back at Chattanooga and they are starving to death. I came up with a term. I'm going to break. Okay, let me just ask you, podcast. Raise one hand. I don't care which one if it's okay for me to brag on myself. Or let's put it another way. Let me tell you what I came up with, and this is bragging. Raise your other hand. Now, if it's not bragging, but it's okay for me to tell you, then you raise both hands and say, Hello, Mr. Stroud. Go ahead and tell us. I was reading about that starvation. 10,000 horses and mules starved to death, podcasters. 10,000. Arthur MacArthur's reading about that. Now listen to this. You write this down. What did I come up with that I'm so proud of? Chattanooga had become the Union Vicksburg. That's me. That's on me. It's the Union Vicksburg. They're starving to death, podcaster. Now let me tell you something else. The other side's not doing that well either. They're not eating high on the hog. Those Confederates are barely staying alive too. I'm going to share something from Hector's Texas Brigade. One of the early moves of Hector's Texas Brigade was when they went up into Missouri and into Kentucky, and they didn't have much to eat, and one Confederate in Hector's Texas Brigade said that he found out what CSA on his belt buckle stood for, corn, salt, and apples. Now this is what I want you to write down. 
I want you to remember this, because I'm going to remind you, it won't be on this podcast, it's going to be on the next one, because I'm going to divide this into two podcasts. Now, that's okay with you, raise one hand. Okay, I saw a lot of hands go up, so it's okay. He was not well, but that regiment needed him. That young man came out of that bed, podcasters, and he went 600 miles, and he went back to his regiment. And he said those men, that regiment was down to 150 soldiers. I have to assume something here. When those regiments left, they were 1,000. 150. And young Lieutenant MacArthur said they were walking skeletons. And the 10,000 dead horses and mules? Where did they get that number? It's in the reports of the officers that they have to turn in. I will tell you this right now. Lincoln and Washington, D.C. is in a panic. They're in a panic. After the Battle of Chickamauga, General Rosecrans led the way. Led the way in the wrong way. He led the retreat. Now, generals are supposed to stay at the head of their army in those days, but not when you're retreating. It was hard to keep up with him. I want to tell you something. You don't do that with Lincoln. You don't do that with senior officers and have another command. Now, one of the things I suggest, and this will go for chapters and chatter, find you a book of Lincoln quotes and stories and enjoy. Read one every day. Because when Lincoln heard about Rosecrans leading the way like that and getting back to Chattanooga, he told his private secretary, John Hay, he said, Rosecrans reminded him of a duck hit on the head. He was so confused. But you know what? That's the end of Rosecrans. Now, podcasters, I want to tell you right now, and you do not have to share this with anybody. This is a podcast secret. Number two. I'm not telling you everything about this war. I told you before, twice I taught it as a course, 16 weeks, and I barely got through Gettysburg. But let me ask you this. If you're Lincoln in 1863 and that army has run from Chickamauga and they're starving to death and they're trapped by the Confederate army, who are you going to call? What general are you going to go to? I want you to name five Union generals that you had enough faith in that you would give the command to save that army. Come up. Do five of them. All right. Four. Three. Two, what is the loneliest number in the world? Grant. Grant. Grant hasn't lost a battle. Vicksburg. What did Lincoln say after Vicksburg? I thought you were wrong, and I was right. But now I know you were right, and I was wrong. Find out what brand of whiskey he drinks. 
Lincoln is coming up with a new command and Grant's in charge. One historian calls it the blending of three armies. And Grant is given command. He can pick his generals. He's going to get four divisions from the Army of the Potomac that recently defeated Lee at Gettysburg. It won't be Meade. I mean, Meade is still commander of the Army of the Potomac. He's going to be fighting Joe Hooker. He's going to bring four divisions down to Chattanooga. Here again, I'm going to get you ready for Jeopardy. I've been reading about this stuff for so many years. Did you hear all those O's? Like young people, they put one S and 16 O's so many years. I had some people ask me that knew something about this. Where in the world did he get the name Fighting Joe Hooker? I read he didn't like Fighting Joe. I don't know, but he... Podcasters, I found out. I found out. Now, this is what you're going to have to do. And I do it safely. Like say if you're driving or something like that. Now if you don't want to write it down, just imagine it, okay? I want you to imagine you're looking at the newspaper in the Civil War. It might confuse you because the war news was not on the front page. That was normally a novel, a continuation of a story. I found in the Boston Daily Evening transcript, you open the paper and on the inside of the front page, it's where you see the war news. Now, this is the way Fighting Joe got the nickname. You're reading things like, well, around town we were able to spot Mrs. So-and-so with the lovely daughter and handsome young man. And then you get down to the war news. Now, this is where it comes from, Okay. Now, you do this in your mind, or you write it down, okay? We're going down to the war news. In all capital letters, you write the word FIGHTING. F-I-G-H-T-I-N-G. All capital letters. FIGHTING. And then you put a dash. See, now they're going to tell you about the fighting. And guess what you saw? Joe Hooker. FIGHTING. Dash. Joe Hooker. FIGHTING Joe Hooker. That's where the nickname came from. Now you may notice his last name, Hooker, synonymous with prostitute. Read several things about that. Camp followers, that in Washington he had wild parties. I'm sure it's all of the above. But there's Fighting Joe Hooker bringing four divisions down from the Army of the Potomac. Fighting Joe Hooker had been defeated at Chancellorsville. And so the newspapers no longer called him Fighting Joe Hooker. He had failure written on his back. That was a scarlet letter. Failure. Now, podcasters, I'm going to do this too. I'm going to do a podcast on Chancellorsville and Fredericksburg. Because I will tell you right now, and you can share this. This is not a podcast secret. You can share this with family, friends, and strangers. 
That's easiest to share it with family because they'll put up with you a little bit longer. Friends, maybe not quite as long as the family, but when they start looking at their watches or they say, well, that's when it's time to stop. Now, strangers, that's the most difficult. Because if you get out there on the sidewalk and you start sharing any information, I don't care if the six numbers that you think are going to win them the lottery, they're going to start pulling those cell phones out and calling 911 on you. But you can share this. There's so many, see all those old, so many things that I want to mention that had to do with the Battle of Chancellorsville that I'm going to do a special podcast on Chancellorsville where I share that information with you, okay? But he's bringing down four divisions. How many men in a division? I'm not going to go back and look. Just try to figure he's got maybe 10,000, 15,000 men. Now, podcasters, <coughs> excuse me, I had a cough. Now, I'm not going to start over. I had to cough. Podcasters, oh my gosh, podcasters, I'm going to tell you something right now, that you on this podcast will be the only ones that know this, what I'm going to tell you, unless you read the second volume of the three-volume History of the Civil War by Shelby Foote and remember everything, now if you did that, then you have read what I'm going to tell you. If you read the 3,000-page History of the Civil War by Shelby Foote, raise your hand. I did not see a single hand go up. I don't know how to say this. I just don't know how to say this. So I'm going to just tell you, and then you come up with a way to say it. But before I tell you what I'm going to tell you, I will tell you that Charlie Company, 1st Battalion, 3rd Marines in Vietnam, which was my battalion, they came up with a song. In Vietnam, sung to the tune of old Davy Crockett, born on the mountaintop. What's that got to do with this? When Fighting Joe Hooker was bringing those divisions down, he was moving at night, and they ran into Confederates, and all of a sudden they start fighting. Those muskets start going off. Those muskets going off, and the flame, and the noise, and those mules, and those horses... They started panicking. We're talking about horses that are pulling wagons, horses that are pulling artillery. And they broke loose as they started charging toward the Confederates. Those mules started charging the Confederates, and the Confederates broke and ran. And some soldier from Ohio wrote a little song about that. And I'm going to read it to you. I don't care what you ask. I'm not going to sing it to you. You understand? I will read you the words. Now, you can write it down. You can put it to music. I don't even know what it goes to. So I'm going to just read you the words, okay? Half a mile, half a mile, half a mile onward. Right toward the Georgia troops broke the 200. Forward the mule brigade. Charge the rebs. Straight for the Georgia troops. Before the 200, when can their glory fade? Oh, wild charge they made. Honor the charge of the mule brigade. Long-eared 200. I want you to work on that. Put that to music. Do a YouTube with that. 
The charge of the mule brigade, when can their glory fade? The long ear 200. They're coming in. Now you can Google, you can look, you can find a map of Chattanooga. And there's a couple of key terrain features. Now this is what we call them in Vietnam. I'm sure the other guy, the key terrain features on the mountain. Looking at it from above, you're going to see Lookout Mountain. I read that Lookout Mountain got its name from an Indian word, Cherokee, I believe, that was two mountains looking at each other. Over 6,000 feet. I want you to do something for me. When you get a chance, I want you to Google Lookout Mountain and look at those photographs. There were not many Confederates up there. You know why? I didn't think anybody would be stupid enough to try to come up there after them. Now, if you know about the Normandy invasion, you know about those cliffs that the Rangers went up, the Army Rangers. I'd never heard anyone brag about these Union soldiers. There were only a few Confederates up there. But they came in. Grant made it. And it was not easy for Grant to make. They came through mud, he came through rain, but that man had the determination and the tenacity of a bulldog. And he got there. And the first thing he's got to do is break that 40-day siege. A general by the name of Howard Smith took Grant out one night looked across the Tennessee River and said, hidden behind those trees is an old wagon road. If we can drive these Confederates out of here, we can use that road and we can open up what Grant will call the Cracker Line. The Cracker was the hardtack, the sea rations of the Civil War. Podcast, I'm going to tell you something. Something happened when Grant was looking across that river. Confederates were looking right at Grant. And there were several generals there. It wasn't just Grant and the other general. And Grant said later in his memoirs, he said, they could have killed me. They just looked at us. Did not lift a rifle. Grant had no explanation for that except, and this is the only thing he could think of, I guess they figured the way we were trapped, we were like prisoners of war, and if they killed us, it had been like murder. Can you imagine if those Confederates had killed Grant? Well, Grant gets some volunteers. They float down that river in one of the few night battles. They attack the Confederates and drive them off, and he opens the cracker line, and he has broken the siege of Chattanooga, and those hard tacks come in, and that hay comes in, the horses and the mules can eat. Now you know what's going to happen next, don't you? Grant's going to fight. But somebody helped him a lot. And that somebody was none other than the Confederate General Braxton Bragg. Now, can you tell a book by its cover? I think you can kind of tell something about it, you know, because... If you see a book that's got a photograph of General Hector's statue at Vicksburg 
and it's Extra's Texas Brigade, I guarantee you it's a beautiful cover and it is a darn good book. Let's go with the title of the book. That's the idea of Extra's Texas Brigade because it was Extra's Texas Brigade and the Army of Tennessee because that was the Confederate Army it served with, 1862-5. That's when they were in, that's when the brigade existed. Let me give you the title of this book and see if you can form an idea. It's a biography of General Braxton Bragg, and the title is The Most Hated Man in the Confederacy. The Most Hated Man in the Confederacy. Now, podcasters, if you ever if you ever start telling stories, and you tell stories, and these stories are made up to make an example of something or to demonstrate something as an analogy. Please tell them that. Because Grant did something, I assume, in his memoirs. I read the memoirs, but it's been some time ago. And what Grant said as kind of humorous about Bragg got into the minds of some teachers as fact. And one of those teachers that it got in the mind as fact and shared with students that got them to giggling, yeah. That was me. That's a podcast secret. You understand? Podcast secret. Zip those lips and pinky swear. I fell for it too. And this is what it was. So I want to remind you, this did not happen. But many people, including myself, thought it did because Grant said it. That back before the Civil War, Bragg was stationed on the frontier. And he was the quartermaster. And the commander had to leave, and so being this next ranking officer, Bragg had to do the quartermaster and become commander. So while he was commander, he took out a piece of paper and he sent a requisition to the quartermaster for some supplies. As quartermaster, he read the requisition from the commander himself and denied it and sent it back. Well, the commander got the denial from himself, and he resubmitted that and said he didn't understand why he could not get that supplies, and he sent it back to himself, and himself sent it back and said, we just can't do it. And Grant said he's the only man he knew that could get in an argument with himself and still couldn't win. The most hated man in the Confederacy. Years ago, podcaster, I'd go to these history conventions. I'd sit there and enjoy listening to professors read their papers about a battle or a general. And I would go to Hillsborough, Hill Junior College, on a Saturday to sit there all day and hear one professor after another read a paper about a battle or a general. And it was about the Confederates. It was a Confederate symposium started by retired Air Force Colonel Simpson, who wrote this outstanding book on Hood's Texas Brigade, which I read back when I was teaching eighth grade scholars. And I used that sort of as an idea when I was doing Extras Brigade. Podcasters, you know that symposium lasted one day, all day on a Saturday, and you better get your $85. I'm going to say that you get your $85 in quickly or you're not going to get a seat. It sold out quickly. And I'd go there. I liked all of them. 
but one I really liked was Dr. McWinty, professor of history at Texas Christian University. And a little bit later, I went to another history symposium. And I don't know if you know what a wet bar is. It was amazing how many students said they knew what a wet bar was. And I went in there with Dr. McWinney, and I went up and I sat down beside him. And I said, man, I sure did like your paper that you read down at Hillsborough. And he thanked me for that. And he told me, he said, I'm doing a biography on General Bragg because I just not cannot believe that he was as terrible a general as everybody says he is. And, well, I'm going to find out. A few years later, I was at another symposium, and there he was. And he'd finished volume one of Bragg's biography. I bought it. It's a good book. But I asked him, when's volume two coming out? Listen to this, podcasters. Dr. Mwenty took a sip of that alcoholic beverage, and he said, I'm not writing any more on him. That man is terrible. I can't stand him. Can't stand him. So if you get on Amazon and you look up Braxton Bragg and you see Dr. McWinty's book, you'll only see volume one. I understand that students took over and they wrote volume two, and I may have it, but I'm not going to go back and look through my several hundred books to find it. The most hated man in the Confederacy. They said he was a he could he could snatch defeat out of the very jaws of victory. Why was he so hated? I'm gonna just tell you one thing. Every morning when the sun came up, you heard, bam. I only did one bam, but I want you to imagine twenty-five. Bum bum bum. He liked to execute a Confederate soldier every morning. I'm going to say that again. He liked to execute at least one Confederate soldier every morning. Oh, they were guilty of something. Desertion? Bam! If you get on Jeopardy, I don't think they'd ever ask you this. There was something in the Civil War that was called French Leave. French Leave. To officers, that was desertion, but not to the enlisted men. Those were soldiers that had families back home, and they went to check on them. They didn't have permission. They went to check on them, and then they'd come back. Bam! Most hated man in the Confederacy. His corps commanders sent word to President Jeff Davis they wanted that man removed from command of that army at Tennessee. Now, Braxton Bragg had only one friend in the entire Confederacy, and that happened to be Jefferson Davis. Davis came out to Chattanooga, and he talked to those corps commanders like Longstreet and Hardee. Now, I'll give Davis, I'll give Davis a little credit because he said, if I remove him, General Longstreet, will you take command of the army? And Longstreet said, no, I'm not capable. I'm going to say that again. Longstreet knew he could not command an entire army. He was not capable. But Davis knew that he was behind the anti-Bragg faction. And so... He told 
brag that you might need to send someone out to Knoxville and besiege General Burnside so he can't come and join General Grant here. And so Bragg ordered Longstreet and 14,000 of the best soldiers in the Confederate Army that was on loan from Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia to go to Knoxville. Now they had the con- the Union outnumbered. There were 60,000 Confederates there. Now you subtract 14,000. If you remember the Battle of Antietam and I talked about a general that executed his own people, if those men are not trying to kill any Yankee soldiers there at Chattanooga, they might as well be dead. And so now Bragg's army is reduced from 60,000 down to the 40,000. Hooker's men came. Grant replaces Rosecrans with General Thomas. Virginian. General Thomas had been in the battle of Chickamauga. And as Rosecrans was running and the Union Army was retreating and the Confederates were coming through, Thomas didn't. 25,000 men he formed on Horseshoe Ridge. And they held the Confederates off and they saved that army. There was an adjutant there. And he sent a message to Rosecrans. And I'm going to tell you who this adjutant was and see if you recognize the name. James A. Garfield. I'm going to say that again. James A. Garfield, think President of the United States. Five presidents were in the Union Army. And the message he sent to Rosecrans was this. Thomas is standing like a rock. Thomas is standing like a rock. And Thomas became forevermore the rock of Chickamauga. If you looked at my Facebook and you see that staff and field officer sword, T.R. Stanley, and I said he stood beside the rock at Chickamauga, that was him. He was there standing with Thomas, fighting to save the Union Army. And after the battle, he would be recommended for promotion to general by none other than George H. Thomas, the Virginian who stayed loyal to the Union because he took an oath when he went to the military academy. And podcasters, his family would hate him to the day they die. And I hate to tell you this, but most Northerners would not trust him because of his Southern birth. And that is a shame. That man was loyal. He was a good officer. And who did not trust him? Lincoln. Now, you know, how do you say this? There was always that little thing, you know, that little thing, T-H-A-N-G, that little thing. Sherman and Grant. But it wasn't only the Northerners. They didn't trust Southerners that stayed loyal. Southerners didn't trust the Northerners went to the South. An extra's Texas Brigade was a general by the name of Samuel French that was one of them. He married a Southern belle, and I think that's what does it. 
and he found out that Davis and those other people didn't trust him, and he wrote a letter podcast. That's in my book. And what he basically told them in that letter is you will not find a more loyal confederate than this man right here. The Rock of Chickamauga saved that Union Army. And so Grant replaces Rosecrans with George H. Thomas. Now you've got Fighting Joe Hooker down there. And then there's going to be one more. One historian calls it the blending of three armies. And that's Grant's best friend. Remember Vicksburg? I'll do it for you. I'll do it for you. That's what Sherman told Grant in a battle he knew he was going to lose. And that's when it hit me what friendship was. I'll do it for you. So you got the army of Sherman, Thomas, and Fighting Joe. Now on the map, I want you to draw the map of the Tennessee River, make it look like a snake. And looking down from above, on the left, is Lookout Mountain. And as Lookout Mountain ends on the right or to the north, I want you to draw a six-mile-long ridge, Missionary Ridge. That's where about 40,000 Confederate soldiers are. Now what Grant is going to do is have a pincher movement. Now pincher movement you can do, all you got to do is raise raise your right hand, if you're right-handed, left hand, if you're left hand, and take that thumb and that forefinger and you just kind of pinch it together. It's going to be a pincher movement. I'm only going to do one. And then on the next podcast, I will do the other one. And this is going to be the one against Lookout Mountain. Fighting Joe Hooker was given orders that to help Sherman, who is crossing the Tennessee River and moving into position to attack the northern part of Missionary Ridge to keep Bragg from sending reinforcements down there, he wants Hooker to demonstrate, meaning go up, don't go any further than where the rifle pits are, and that will hold Bragg's army there so that we can get Sherman in position. And Thomas, your men are going to stay in the center, and that's where you're going to be, in the center. You're going to stay and hold your position as a reserve unit. Well, Fighting Joe knew that his demonstration is not what he wanted. He knew that his nickname now was Failure because of Chancellorsville, and he's going to make that up. And so, he passed orders to his commanders. Be prepared to charge at daylight. Be prepared to charge at daylight. Well... At daylight, which is not sunrise, but at daylight, about 14,000 Union soldiers come out of their trenches and they start forward for Lookout Mountain. There are not many Confederates up there because, like I said, they didn't think anybody would be foolish enough to try to attack them anyway. And there was a Confederate general on that mountain, whose last name was Jackson. Now this comes from other two other Confederate generals. 
And this man, this other General Jackson, they gave the nickname, now Stonewall Jackson was Stonewall. He's dead. He got wounded, died at Chancellorsville. This Jackson they nicknamed Mudwall. Mudwall. Because he would not move. He stayed as far from the fighting as he could get. And as Hooker's men were coming up, Mudwall Jackson would not bring reinforcements up. Now I'm going to tell you something, podcasters. You look at that mountain, and you look at that almost horizontal, 1,800 feet up there, Lookout Mountain. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do something again. I'm going to, I was in Vietnam. I was on a hill. And I tell people every now and then, if they ask me about it, that hill was a mountain in East Texas. Hill 327, 327 feet high. Only walked up it once. Most of the time we'd land in the LZ below it and they'd get in these six by trucks, deuce and a half, six by, and they'd bring us back up. These soldiers are coming up. And nearly 2,000 Confederates are firing at them along with artillery. And they're coming. And these soldiers are coming. They're using one hand to pull themselves up with a tree or something. And they got a musket in the other. And Union artillery is firing. Now I will tell you this also. That because of the Vietnam War evolving. I was there so early that a lot of the terminology came about later. And one of the things that I heard about was that friendly fire isn't friendly. All you got to do is ask Stonewall Jackson about how friendly, friendly fire is. There's nothing friendly about it. And as they were going up, Union artillery was firing into them and killing their own people. A sergeant, I believe it was a sergeant, by the name of John Kiggins, K-I-G-G-I-N-S, 149th New York Infantry. Listen to this, podcasters. With Confederates firing down from above and his own Union artillery shelling them, he took the battle flag of the 149th and he started waving it back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And the Union looking through telescopes, they saw that and they stopped firing. On January 12th, 1892, he went down to the post office and there was a box. Not a large one. And inside was the Medal of Honor. And the citation was very simple. November 24th, 1863. He waved the colors to save the lives of the men who were being fired upon by their own batteries and thereby drew upon himself consecrated fire from the enemy 
he will be awarded the Medal of Honor. This flag thing. I told you I was going to tell you about something. That I would tell you something about that something later on. That's that one something. There's that flag. But there's another flag. Eighth Kentucky Cavalry. Captain John Wilson was charging. And this is what he wrote. Fortune favored us. And before sunup, I in front reached the summit and planted the flag on top of Lookout Mountain, the highest flag that was planted during the entire war. He didn't get the Medal of Honor I checked. You can see something. A few months later, but it wasn't long after that, a photographer set up a studio there and would take photographs of people that were out there dangerously close to falling off that thing. Podcasters, you get on Google and you Google Chattanooga, Lookout Mountain, and I bet you can find that photograph a few months later, and that's Captain Wilson with about six of his men and their poles right there on the edge with that battle flag. And that photographer took that picture. One more thing. When those Union soldiers got to the top, there was a heavy mist in the air. And all of a sudden, Something happened that they will never forget. Many of them are going to live into the next century and they'll never forget what I'm going to tell you. All of a sudden, the fog lifted, revealing a cloud bank below and in between was a clear blue sky. And as long as those veterans lived, they called the fight for Lookout Mountain the battle above the clouds. Grant was furious when he heard about that. He said there was no battle. Battle? It was a long, continuing skirmish. Podcasters. Grant was right. Skirmishes have so many men. Battles have so many more. It was a skirmish. But 180 men were killed in that little skirmish. 471 wounded. Confederates lost over 100. I wouldn't call it the skirmish. I'm going to just tell you this right now. Grant said there was no battle. War correspondents said there was no battle above the clouds. It was a mist, it was a mist, it was a mist, there was no... I'm telling you what the soldiers said, and they were there, podcasters. And forgive them, not one of them had ever been to weatherman school. They said it was the battle above the clouds, it's the battle above the clouds. We do not need any further explanation. But the Battle of Chattanooga is not over. There will be a bloody one coming.
It is to take a ridge that not a missionary was on. And that will be the subject of the next podcast. Now, I know Dale wants homework. And I hope you do this homework. This is going to be simple. Go to YouTube. Go to music. Go to music. And I want you to play and listen to and enjoy, hopefully, the song. Are you ready for this? Get ready. The song, The Battle Above the Clouds. The song, The Battle Above the Clouds. And podcasters, I'll see you again soon when we do the fight for the ridge that was not a single missionary on. Until then, have a great one.